Hi, this is Wilson, lead pastor of Renew Church OC. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Our sermon series, Psalms, the Internal Life of David, pairs narratives from David's life with Psalms that help us pull back the curtain to understand what he's feeling, how he's praying, and the way he's relating to God. LA is all about how you look and the two-second impression you give to other people. But God doesn't look at the appearance. He looks at the heart. I hope this series helps us to take our eyes off of the external and focuses our attention on developing our internal life with Jesus. All right, it's good to be back with you guys. Let's do this. Let's break up into groups. And today's question is a little heavy. And so I didn't mean it to be that way. I wanted to be funny and light. But it just ends up being that way because of what we're going to talk about today. And so if you feel comfortable, please share. When was the last time or share a time when you were bullied or persecuted? Okay? I know. It's pretty, it's pretty uh, heavy. Let's break up into groups and uh, let's go ahead and discuss. Can we do that? All right. All right, everyone. Uh, it's fun to talk, isn't it? It's fun to discuss and dialogue with one another. If you would, take your Bibles, turn to Psalm chapter 54. Psalm chapter 54. If you don't have your device or your Bible, you can look on up here. Psalm chapter 54, we're looking at this psalm this morning. I'm going to get right into it. Verse 1 says, have mercy on me, my God. Have mercy on me, for in you I take refuge. I take refuge in the shadow of your wings until this disaster has passed. Verse 2, I cry out to God most high, to God who vindicates me. He sends from heaven and saves me, rebuking those who hotly pursue me. God sends forth his love and his faithfulness. Verse 4, I am in the midst of lions. I'm forced to dwell among ravenous beasts, men whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Verse 6, They spread a net for my feet. I was bowed down in distress. They dug a pit in my path, but they have fallen into it themselves. Now, what is happening in this psalm? Well, the intro to this psalm, if you look at it, it says, when David fled from Saul into a cave. David is in a dangerous predicament. Saul is hunting him down like a dog to murder him. And here now he is cornered in a cave. What a terrible predicament. But I want you to notice his response as we continue to read this psalm in verse 7. It says, my heart, O God, is steadfast. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make music. What is he saying? In a cave? Verse 8, awake my soul, awake harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. Verse 9, I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among the peoples. Here is David's response in a cave. My heart is steadfastly trusting. My mouth is joyously singing. My hands are diligently playing. And this attitude is one of worship. How is he able to do this in the predicament that he's in? Well, continue to read in verse 10. For great is your love reaching to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. God's love and faithfulness 
is sent forth in the life of David. What we see is David's complete trust in God's love and faithfulness in his life. And it brings him total peace, even in the dangerous cave that he's in. The peace David secures by trusting in the Lord's love and faithfulness allows David to show love and faithfulness to someone who's bent on destroying him. Now, let me repeat that again. This is important to hear. The peace David secures by trusting in the Lord's love and faithfulness allows David to show love and faithfulness to Saul who is bent on destroying him. God's peace transforms him into a peacemaker. Isn't that beautiful? God's peace transforms David into a peacemaker. And that's what we want to look and focus our time on this morning. We want to look at the historical context of Psalm chapter 57, and it's found in 1 Samuel 24. If you're, ta uh, if you're taking notes and doing all these, you can turn to Psalm chapter 24. And what we want to do is we want to look at how to reconcile with brothers and sisters who have sinned against us, who have bullied us, who have persecuted us. We call this peacemaking. If you could put the next slide up. One of my favorite books is a book by Ken Sandy called The Peacemaker. And it's about resolving personal conflicts. And the excerpt that I'm going to read perfectly captures the spirit of a peacemaker. And it's the same idea that we looked at in Psalm 54. Peacemakers are people who breathe grace. They draw continually on the goodness and power of Jesus Christ. They bring his love, mercy, forgiveness, strength, and wisdom to the conflicts of daily life. God delights to breathe his grace through peacemakers and use them to dissipate anger, encourage repentance and reconciliation. When Christians learn to be peacemakers, they can turn conflict into an opportunity to strengthen relationships and to make their lives a testimony to the love and to the power of Jesus Christ. You see, God's peace transforms us into peacemakers. Wouldn't you love to experience that in your life, even today? Wouldn't that be an amazing testimony that you're able to share to others the peace that transforms into peacemaking? Well, we're going to look at principles on how to be peacemakers, and we're going to look at it in the life of David. So let's look in verse 1 as we read 1 Samuel 24, and it says this, After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told that David is in the desert of En Gedi. Verse 2. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all of Israel and set out to look for David. We see here that Saul is chasing David to put him to death. He wants to kill David as soon as he can find him. And so he handpicks 3,000 men. Isn't that overkill when you think about it? David had a small motley crew that was hiding, and Saul decides, I'm going to get my best guys. I'm going to get 3,000 men, and I'm going to search for him to exterminate him. So for four years, David has been a fugitive. He has been running and hiding from King Saul and the Israeli army all over Israel. Now, why is he doing this? It's because Saul is jealous of David's success and fame. He is envious that God's hand is on him. If you remember, as you study the history of David, in chapter 18, 
we see that even from the beginning, when Saul and David are coming back from a glorious battle, all the women, all the women from the villages of Israel would come out and they would sing the song, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. It was a celebratory song. It was an innocent song full of hope and jubilation. It was not something that should have hit Saul the way that it did, but yet it did. And Saul, because of his anxiety and suspicion, he took a song that really wasn't even true, right? Thousands, tens of thousands, that wasn't true. But he took that and all the worry and fear churned into his soul that David might usurp him someday. And he says this in chapter 18, they've credited to David tens of thousands, but to me only thousands? What more can he do but get the kingdom? And so from that point on, David had a, or Saul had a suspicious eye on David that he would usurp him. And finally, it came to fruition where Saul was outright trying to kill David. Now, did David do anything wrong to Saul? No. As a matter of fact, David had been a model servant to the king. Loyal and faithful and obedient in every way. Yet Saul is sinning against him. And this is the heartbreaking uh, fact that here David is good, but yet Saul is out to destroy him for no reason at all. And he wastes his years, four years, running from fear of death. Now let's look in verse 3. So Saul came to the sheep pens along the way, and a cave was there. And Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. Now imagine this scene. That David finds himself in the same cave with Saul. And Saul doesn't realize it. As a matter of fact, he's really the only person in the cave as he went to go to the bathroom. And he has no idea that David is waiting. This is the same guy who's been hunting him down. He has caused more pain, more sorrow, more anxiety, more heartache than anyone else in David's life. And now he's here. He's alone in the cave. You know, in Psalm chapter 57, we read it in verse 4. David says, I'm in the midst of lions. I'm forced to dwell among ravenous beasts, men whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Verse 6, he says, they spread a net for my feet. I was bowed down in distress. They dug a pit in my path, but they have fallen into it themselves. And that's exactly the situation that we find ourselves. As a matter of fact, it seems like poetic justice, doesn't it? Verse 4, the men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give you your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Go ahead and kill him. And here David had the opportunity to take care of all his problems with one swift stroke of his sword. David could have eliminated all his grief and pain and trouble. But here's the point. David chose not to. As a matter of fact, he chose not to take revenge on Saul. Rather, he chose to uh, place his faith that God would eventually put him on the throne. However, David goes far beyond this because not only did David leave the matter in God's hands, he desires what most of us wouldn't have even dreamed of in this situation. He desires reconciliation with the person who has sinned against him. We want to look at five principles on peacemaking. If you're taking notes, 
These will be valuable principles for you. Five steps in the peace process. This is how we reconcile with somebody who sins against us. Let's continue reading in verse 5. It says, Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterwards, David was conscience-stricken for having done this, and he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul. I want to stop right there. The first step in reconciling with the person who sinned against us is, number one, to show a sincere desire. If you're taking notes, write that down. Show a sincere desire. And that's what we got to have. We have to have a sincere desire to reconcile. If you don't sincerely desire to reconcile with an individual, you will never do it. I know personally how that is. When somebody sins against me, the Holy Spirit usually, you know, brings that to light in my life. And I'm sure he's done it to you guys as well, where you need to go and reconcile. But what do you say? Because of the bitterness and resentment that you hold on to, because of fear of confrontation, because of the work that it would take emotionally to do it, you don't do it, right? Well, there will never be reconciliation between you and an offending person until it becomes a preeminent priority in your life. Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 says it this way. Jesus says, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has some, something against you, leave your gift in front of the altar, first go and be reconciled to them, then come, offer your gift, settle matters quickly. That shows priority. One of the greatest traits of David is that he desires reconciliation. All throughout his life, we see in his relationships with Saul and Abner and Absalom, this desire to be reconciled with people who are sinning against him and sinning grievously against him. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. You see, David is a man after God's own heart because David desires peace. He desires restoration. And God's children must be marked by that kind of restoration. The Bible tells us that as peacemakers, we need to take the initiative to reconcile. That means the sincere desire uh, that translates into initiating restoration. Matthew 18 and verse 15 says it this way. If your brother or sister sins, go and show their fault just between the two of you. If they listen, you have won them over. This is an amazing truth. If there's one thing that we've learned in life is that people are going to offend us. And brothers and sisters in the church are going to offend us. We may have a desire to be reconciled with them, but if we say to ourselves, man, I'm not going to initiate because they sinned against me. They need to come to me first and apologize, and then we can see about restoring a relationship. If we act that way, we'll never see any kind of reconciliation. What does David do? Verse 8, let's look at it. Then David went out of the cave, and he called out to Saul, my lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. Here we see that David initiates peacemaking. 
And I want you to recognize two things that David does to show this he, he sincerely wants it. Number one, I want you to notice where he confronts Saul. David does not confront Saul in the cave. Now imagine, Saul is going to the bathroom. He's peeing, right? And then all of a sudden, David surrounds him with all of his men. And he says, Saul, let's reconcile. You'd have to admit, right, that that would be smart. It'd be advantageous for David to be around his men when he was with Saul. But David knows that real reconciliation would not happen. Saul would have inti been intimidated in that cave and would have said anything to escape. So threats, intimidation was not his purpose. David's desire was for true restoration. So what does he do? He waits until Saul is out of the cave and with his 3,000 able warriors in safety. You see, there's an awesome truth to be found here. If you really want reconciliation, your goal is not to intimidate. As a matter of fact, if reconciliation is your goal, you want that person to feel as safe as possible. You don't want their defenses to go up. And many times when we confront others, our goal is to prove that we're right. Isn't that right? It's to prove that we're right in being offended. And so we try to overpower or intimidate or control the situation. And the person is so defensive that reconciliation can never be achieved. I want you to notice how he confronts Saul. Verse 9. And David said to Saul, why do you listen when men say that David is bent on harming you? Here he diffuses the situation by giving Saul the benefit of the doubt. He's not full of suspicion. Rather, he is declaring that maybe the reason he's doing this is because he's heard bad reports. He's heard false rumors. This is not just some faith-saving technique. There's wisdom in what he's doing. David is uh, creating a safe place where they can dialogue. He's accommodating in this process by giving Saul the benefit of the doubt. David is paving the road for peacemaking to occur genuinely and naturally. You see, when we're confronting people who've sinned against us, are we wise in creating a safe space? Where we confront, how we confront. You know, it's important that we have a sincere desire in doing this. Now, the second point we want to look at is to initiate goodwill. We need to allow our actions to prove goodwill. Let's look in verse 10. It says, This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. Verse 11, see my father. Look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but I did not kill you. See, there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I'm guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. So when Saul came out of the cave, David follows him and he shouts out that he has a piece of Saul's robe and he shows it. I'm sure the very first thing Saul would have done was to look down at his robe to see if this really happened. So when David raises that piece of fabric, what was he doing? What is he showing? He was saying, this could have been your head if I were seeking revenge. So I've proved to you my goodwill. You see, when we reconcile with somebody, it's important that our actions show goodwill. 
The New Testament equivalent of this is found in Romans chapter 12. Could you put that slide up? Look at it with me. Romans chapter 12 says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, this isn't literal burning coals. That would be an extreme form of revenge, right? That's not what it's talking about. This is figurative. This is metaphorical. He's saying that when somebody sins against you, you do these things and it will heap burning coals. What does that mean? When we show goodwill to a person who has sinned against us, it awakens guilt. There's a discomfort at the way that that person has treated you. It stirs within that person a sense of remorse and maybe even the possibility for repentance. Are we initiating good, goodwill? Number three, we need to speak with gentleness. Don't forget this part. Giving a gentle answer. Proverbs 15 and verse 1 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up anger. When we confront someone who has sinned against us, Many times we come heated and ready to fight. We communicate with sarcasm or insults or profanity or screams and tirades. When we confront somebody who sinned against us, if our goal is reconciliation, we have to come calm, open-minded, and gentle in our dialogue. What does a gentle answer look like? And we see it in the life of David. Let's look at verse 11. He says, see my father. David calls Saul the most loving and respectful word for father. He essentially calls him dad. Here David shows familial affection to Saul. Saul was David's father-in-law and he says dad. The reason why he is gentle towards Saul is that he never sees Saul as an enemy. He has always seen Saul as family. That's a powerful truth. When we are sinned against, we tend to demonize the person who has offended us. We tend to see them as the enemy. But if that person is a born-again Christian, he's in our family. She's in our family, aren't they? So we see them, or we should see them, as a brother and sister in Jesus Christ. You see, that changes our perspective, doesn't it? You know, when Saul does finally pass away, later in 2 Samuel... I want you to look at David's response to the news. I'm just going to read it if you would allow me to. It's a, uh, it's a passage found in 2 Samuel chapter 1. This is what he says to the news that Saul is dead. Then David and all the men with him took a hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan. Verse 17. And David took up his lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan. And he says this in verse 19. Your glory, O Israel, lies slain on your heights. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. O mountains of Gilboa, may you neither have dew nor rain, nor fields that yield offerings or grain. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled. The shield of Saul no longer rubbed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. Saul and Jonathan in life were loved and gracious. And in death they were not parted. 
They are swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with garments of gold. We see that David genuinely saw Saul as dad and mourned him with that kind of perspective. You see, reconciliation is a reality when you realize that the person that offended you is not your enemy, but is in fact your family. And so often our words are harsh or accusatory or inflammatory when we must learn to use the proper words, the proper way, with the proper perspective. The fourth point is declare the truth. And this is one of the most important points to the peacemaking process, to say God's truth. Let's look in verse 11. See, there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I'm guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. You see, when you've been wronged, it's necessary for you to declare the truth of that sin. So that you are responsible to confront the person who sinned against you with the truth. With the truth of God's word. Now, why is that? You know, many years ago, uh, there was a pastor, a very well-known pastor. If I were to say his name, uh, most all of you would recognize who that person was. That pastor sinned against me, and I hated him. For one year, I wished him dead, okay? I'm being honest here. I hated that guy. I was so bitter toward him. I just wanted everything to go wrong in his life. And I just really, really uh, was diving into kind of this, 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 you know, not, not Christian way, right? And so for one year, God, you know, uh, did a work in my life. The Holy Spirit really worked through me. And so I realized, you know what, I need to take the initiative and I need to get right because of my hatred toward this man. So I remember uh, I went to his church. After the service, I met him and he graciously, you know, took me into his office. He asked me what was going on. And I told him, you know, please forgive me. You know, I've hated you all these uh, all this year, and, you know, I, 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 was, um, I was very, very hateful, and, you know, God wants me to uh, ask for forgiveness, and so would you forgive me? And he graciously did, and we prayed together, and it was a beautiful thing. But right after the prayer, he actually looked at me, and he said, okay, now tell me what I did to you. And I, I'm Asian, right? I'm Asian, and so, you know, we don't like to share those kinds of things. And I said, it doesn't matter. I was trying to be all spiritual. It doesn't matter. You know, here we prayed together, everything's okay. But he kept insisting, no, I need to know because God may be teaching me something through you. God wants me to have the opportunity to repent if it's something I did against you. And that's the reason why we need to declare the truth. Because God is teaching that person through us as we invite God into the process of confrontation. And here David does that. He allows the Lord to be mediator. And many times we forget to do this in our peacemaking process. Let's look in verse 12. It says, may the Lord judge between you and me. And may the Lord avenge the wrongs that you've done to me. But my hand will not touch you. Verse 15. May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. You see, David's intention is not revenge. It's a restoration of a relationship. And so he invites God into the process. He declares the truth. He invites God. 
And then he helps Saul to realize his sin. You see, David continues to allow truth to reveal sin. Verse 14. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? What's he saying? He's saying, Dad, why are you coming after me? I'm a nobody. I'm a dead dog. I'm a flea. He's saying it's foolish for the king of Israel to be hunting down a nobody like me. He's saying, I am not the thing that you should be consumed with. You are the king. You have important kingly matters. You, you have pressing God-given responsibilities. Why are you obsessed with destroying me? What David is doing is he's holding up a mirror to Saul's face so that he can see his sin. You know the beauty of this is I want you to notice how Saul responds to the sin. He's under great conviction. Verse 16. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept loudly. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I've treated you badly. You have just now told me about the good that you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. You see, David was able to overcome evil with good, and Saul is repenting. And here's my uh, last point, my fifth point. Keep on forgiving. It's a beautiful thing. Saul realizes his sin. He admits his sin. Let's look in verse 19. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way that you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. Verse 22. So David gave his oath to Saul. And then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. In reading this, isn't this powerful? Wow! David and Saul are now reconciled. Saul repented. He wept. He confessed. David and he took an oath. Everything is good. They're going to live happily ever after, right? I want you to notice in chapter 26. This is stunning. Verse 1 and 2. Let's look at it. The Ziphites went to Saul at Geba and said, Is not David hiding in the hill of Hakalah, which faces Yesimon? And so Saul went down to the desert of Sif with 3,000 of his chosen men to search for David. What in the world? Deja vu all over again. I thought everything was taken care of. I thought the restoration process happened. Now we're in a different desert but it's the same number of men for the same purpose. We see the exact same thing happen. Isn't this unbelievable? And when you read chapter 26, we don't have time to do it, but maybe this week you can go ahead and read it. David has to go through the exact same steps for reconciliation all over again. It's deja vu. But here's my point. Sometimes we go to reconcile. We forgive them. They confess and repent. But then, later on, they commit the same sin against us that they did before. What do we do? Well, what does Jesus tell us to do? In Matthew 18, it says in verse 21, Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered and said, I tell you not seven times, but 70 times seven. We're all familiar with this New Testament verse. Jesus is saying, 
that the idea is to keep on continually forgiving as many times as your brother and sister needs forgiveness. Now, I know this is an extreme example, right? Nobody's out to kill you, right? You forgive them and then they try to kill you again. I'm not saying that. But God uses an extreme example to drive home his point. The principle that we need to have in peacemaking is keep forgiving as many times as that person needs forgiveness. Because the principle is to sanctify you. The principle of peacemaking is to sanctify. Let me say this again. Psalm 57. The peace David secures by trusting in the Lord's love and faithfulness allows David to show love and faithfulness to someone who is bent on destroying him. You see, God's peace transforms him into a peacemaker, and he can do the same for us. Amen? Amen. Being a peacemaker. Number one, can we put the slide up? Show a sincere desire to reconcile. Number two, initiate goodwill and reconciliation. Number three, speak with gentleness. Remember that you're family. Number four, declare the truth. Don't shy away from it. Then number five, keep forgiving as long as that person needs it. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. It is like a surgeon's scalpel that identifies rot, identifies sin. It identifies something that needs to be taken care of and excised out of our lives. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us afresh and anew about what it means to be a peacemaker, what it means to follow Jesus in loving to the extreme. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Hi, this is Pastor Wilson again. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If our sermons have been a blessing to you, I'd love for you to consider supporting our church and ministry. As we approach the end of the year, we're asking our church family to consider investing into a special fund that support our interns and seminarians. Renew has a vision of investing in pastors for the next generation through our internship program. And your financial partnership can help set up a young pastor or missionary to faithfully serve the Lord for the next 30 to 40 years. I often dream about what Irwin or Kevin will do for the kingdom of God through their 30s, 40s, and 60s. Our goal is to raise $50,000 over the season. Would you consider joining us? You can give through PayPal or Venmo or by sending a check. All the information is on the description section of the podcast. Or you can visit our website. And your investment is tax deductible. Thank you so much for being a part of our church family. If you're ever in the Fullerton, California area, please drop by into our Sunday service. I'd love to meet you. God bless.